0: I'm one of the associate pastors here or the staff elder to students. And yeah, I'm delighted to bring you the word of God here this morning. And to tell you uh, a little bit something about me, I have many sort of odd hobbies. A lot of the students kind of know about this or nicks of various things that I like. And one thing that I just absolutely love is nature documentaries. I've seen so many I watch all the ones on, from Disney Plus to Netflix to whatever's free. I've seen almost all of them, uh, and I absolutely love them. And my son Isaiah, he has grown to love them as well, and it's fun watching it with him. And so these are some of the photos that I come through that. And I love them because I love the outdoors, and I just love to see nature. I love to see the animals in nature. I love to see what God has created and really the uniqueness and the amazing um, Diversity that is in our world that God created. But there is at some point. If you're somebody who's ever watched anything about nature, there's always uh, some point in the show where it dawns upon you that someone is filming this or someone is taking a photograph of this and you're like, I don't know how much they're paying this guy, but it's not enough. It's not enough because this is like what's really going on behind the scenes. You're swimming with a great white, you're about to get attacked by a grizzly bear, you're set on fire, and you're going to get crushed by a wave. And that's what it takes for them to get those photos. And so it's not oftentimes we sort of pull the veil back and look at these photographers and uh, they're photographing something that is much more amazing than themselves. But it can't be denied that they have skills, that they have bravery, that they have abilities to take these shots. And what they're doing and what they're trying to do and really sacrificing themselves in a lot of ways is trying to show us for a perspective Of nature we've never seen before, right? To see something that we've never seen, to reveal something to us we've never seen before. And that's what they're really trying to show us. And the reason I bring this up, because very much today, as we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is very much like that photographer. He's someone throughout the scriptures who is sort of in the background. He's a photographer taking a picture, and his subject of what he's trying to help us see is Christ. And so though he himself does many amazing things, it's not very often that we take a step back to look at the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is ultimately pointing us towards Christ, and he's trying to help you see, look how amazing Christ is. He's incredible. He's beautiful. He's kind. He's compassionate. He is just. He will judge the world in righteousness, And that is the Spirit's job. And so Rick said it so well last week when he said, Look, the Holy Spirit, and it's true of his work, is not Christian-centered. He is Christ-centered. He's not so much about making much of us and what he does to us as he is about making much of Christ. And everything that the Spirit does is towards that goal. He's trying to help us to perceive Christ, to be like Christ. And so even from the very beginning of the Bible, what do we see in Genesis 1-2? That the Holy Spirit is present, that he's hovering over the waters, that he's involved in creation. And so from creation to the end of the Bible, the Spirit is present, and he's trying to show us Christ. Think about the activities of the Spirit. The Spirit creates so the glory of Christ might be manifest. The Spirit reveals so that Christ might be known. The Spirit regenerates so Christ might be embraced. The Spirit illuminates so that Christ might be understood. The Spirit sanctifies so that Christ might be imitated. The Spirit empowers so Christ might be proclaimed. And the Spirit gifts so that Christ might be ultimately served. And so the Spirit is very much about Christ. And as we talk about his work today, really the work of the Holy Spirit can be summed up then in three activities relating to Christ. They consist of revealing, regenerating, and renewing. And all three of those activities act as lights through which the, or a spotlight, so to speak, through which the glory of Christ is seen, it's admired, and ultimately that it's embraced. And so i to take a moment, it would be amiss for us to talk and uh, preach about the Holy Spirit and not ask him to help me and to help us. So let's pray real quick. Spirit, we need you. I need you, Lord. Nothing significant will happen in preaching without your work, Lord. Not in me, not in us. And so we pray that you would do your work here now. That is We shine a light upon you that you would just direct that light right back on Christ, Lord, and help us to see the glory of Christ and to be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we'll go to the first point today, the first work of the Holy Spirit, which is for him to reveal, to give revelation. And I completely agree with Rick last week when he was essentially saying that, look, when it comes to the ministry of the Holy Spirit towards Christians under the new covenant in the New Testament, the nature of that ministry must be defined by what Jesus said in the Gospels. He's the one who sent the Spirit. He's the one who promised the Spirit. And really the epistles, the letters, everything after the Gospels just flushes out the details of the nature of that ministry. So it makes sense for us to start in the Gospels. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn over to the Gospel of John. And we're going to turn to chapter 16. John 16, where Jesus talks to his Disciples, the closest ones, the ones that would become the apostles, about the work of the Holy Spirit. John 16, and we're going to start in verse 12 today, but we'll be going retroactive a bit as well. John 16, 12 through 15, this is what Jesus says. He says to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he reveals, I mean, sorry, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, and all that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so what Jesus promises his disciples here is that the ministry of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, is essentially one of revelation. He's going to bring you things that you cannot bear right now that are to come. He promises the apostles' revelation. And we have to be careful when we read this text because I think sometimes we think, well, we have the same Holy Spirit, so that must mean he guides us into truth the same way that Jesus was talking to his disciples here, but I don't think that's quite the case, the apostles were given a certain authority to write scripture, to receive re- revelation directly from Christ, and to put that into place in the church. And so, while the apostles received direct revelation before the written word, the way that the Spirit guides us into the truth is through the apostolic, I messed this up first service too, but the apostles' witness what the apostles have written, what the apostles have shared with us in Scripture, because this ultimately is what the Spirit revealed to those apostles. And it's comforting to know that there's nothing that God expects you to know in your Christian life that is not contained in the pages of Scripture. There's nothing that God expects you to know in your Christian life that is not contained in the Scripture. And so, when it comes to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and giving revelation, there's a couple sentences in which this is not so new. We just talked about Genesis. And even in Genesis, when the Spirit was involved in creating, it was an act of revealing Christ, of manifesting the glory of Christ in creation. And that's certainly the way that Paul understood it, right, in Romans 1 and 2. What did Paul say when he was talking about the gospel? He said, Look, from the foundation of the world, from the beginning of creation, what? God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. You could see the glory in God of what has been made. And it is for that reason that when men choose to worship idols instead, that they are sinning, that they have rebelled against God, that they have turned from God, and it is just for God to condemn them for their sin. And so in some sense, this ministry of revelation isn't new, and it's not new in the sense that the, the Holy Spirit, I think, was known to have been involved in the giving of Scripture as well, which is a different form of revelation. We usually refer to nature and creation, what people call general revelation. It generally reveals something about God. But then there's specific or special revelation, which is God's written word, God's spoken word, which reveals specific things about God, about the nature of salvation and how we come to God. And that's the type of thing that Peter writes about in his second epistle. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, this is what Peter writes to the church. He says, look, for we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And what Peter is saying is me, James, and John specifically, we were witnesses to Christ. He actually was transfigured before us. We saw him as he really was in his glory. And so he says, For when we, he received honor and glory from God the Father, and a voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's referring to this incident during Jesus' ministry in which James, Peter, and John saw Jesus transfigured. But then he says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Confirmed. What is Peter saying according to the way that that sentence is actually structured? He's saying, look, there's something more certain than our experience of having seen Jesus. And what is it? It's the prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy, no scripture, it could say, was even, ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we learn something here about revelation. The written word is described, like I said, as something more certain than experiential revelation. The written word is not an interpretation, it's not a perspective of God, it's God's very word. That God carried those men without uh, ignoring their personalities and the experiences they had in their life in such a way that he filled them and empowered them to write the words exactly the way that he wanted it to be written. And so the Bible claims for itself it is the very words of God. And it also tells us that the word of God is not man's own invention. We didn't make it up. It's not for us to change. It's not for us to alter. It's not for us to ignore, ultimately. And the written words were spoken through those various individuals that the Spirit filled. So what was new about what Jesus was saying here in John 16? What really was new was going to be the nature of that revelation. It was going to be a new revelation. It was going to be revelation completed until this time with the Old Testament, which is just as authoritative as the New Testament. We don't view here that the Old Testament somehow has less importance than the New. And really, you cannot understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old but he was going to give new revelation because what had been given that far was not complete about Christ. God's full plan of salvation had not been laid out. Christ had not yet been exalted. And so there would come a revelation from Christ about Christ to those apostles. And so there was a completion to come and ultimately as the apostles died off and the apostles were given that revelation, So God's revelation was fully revealed in salvation. That's why authors like Jude told the church, look, the faith that has once and for all been delivered to the saints, you need to contend for that. It's once and for all been delivered. There's nothing to be altered or changed here. It's why Paul could write to a young Timothy and say things like, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete for every good work. And that's where we see it. For every good work that you may be complete. There's nothing God expects you to know that's not inside the pages of this book. And so why does that matter for us? Why does that matter, the Spirit's ministry of revelation? And I think the biggest reason is this. To be honest, as Christians, uh, I think Rick called you know, the Holy Spirit your crazy uncle or something. Like, you don't know what he's going to do. He's kinda, he can seem odd or weird, or he just seems like his ministry is different. And we hear about these gifts and these miraculous things. And the truth is, I think as Christians, we get a lot of strange ideas of how we understand the will of God in our life, how we understand exactly what the Spirit of God wants us to do. And instead of t- turning to the pages of this book where God, the Spirit has spoken, the Spirit has delivered this and expects us to know this, to obey this, to meditate on it, we turn to other things. And so we, think, uh, we look at things as if God approves, or that's what God's will is, based really on the subjectivity of ourselves. We think, well, if I have a series of successes in my life, that, mean, that must mean that God approves of me, that I'm going in the right direction. And that's not the case with the students I've been preaching, them, preaching with them through judges, and they very quickly learn that's not the case. There's a lot of things in Judges from the people of Israel, their perspective, they could have viewed as success, but God couldn't have been more opposed to their idolatry, to their twisted nature of their worship. And so just because things are going our way or going successfully doesn't mean God puts his stamp of approval on that. doesn't mean that that is God's will for your life. Another one is something I call open-door theology. It's something I once submitted to and I understand. It's, it's this theology that if there's an open door, if there's an opportunity, that that means that God wants me to step through that door. And if there's this closed door, that, that God doesn't want me to step through that one. And whenever I think of this now, I honestly, I think of Paul in the Philippian jail. Do you remember the story? Paul's there. He's with the jailer. He's with the prisoners. There's an earthquake. The doors open up. The Roman guard comes down, and he's getting ready to take his own life because he knows if prisoners escape and he's a Roman, that he's going to be killed anyway. And Paul says, stop. We're all here. Don't take your life. And that could have been an opportunity for Paul to say, I literally have an open door. God wants me to escape this prison and go preach the gospel. But Paul stayed, and he ministered to Philippi. He ministered to the prisoners, and he ministered to the jailer. And that ultimately became the beginning of the church in Philippi. And it's a silly example, but it's true. Just because we have a good opportunity doesn't necessarily mean God wants us to step in that direction. He wants us to consider his word. He doesn't want what's just good. He wants what is best. Another course of action people often take is they say something like, well, I just had peace about this decision. And it's certainly true, God gives us peace. As a Christian, you should experience peace in your life. Peace with God, peace with your fellow man. The Bible tells us live at peace as much as it's up to you with your fellow people around you. But I don't know about you, I've made a lot of stupid, bad, and sinful decisions and had complete peace about it in that moment. By your laughs, I can tell that's probably happened to you too. And so we think, oh, you know, if I had peace about this. But I really think that's something we have to second think. There's a lot of things that I think God, in retrospect, I know he wanted me to do. And I had nothing but peace about it. I was anxious. I was scared. But God still wanted me to go, to do those things. And lastly, and probably most blatantly, is sometimes we just do things that are contrary to God's word. We don't take into consideration his word. Think about the situations where there's two people and although there's no grounds for biblical divorce, someone is saying, you know what, Jesus told me. The spirit told me, it's okay, I can leave my spouse. I don't need to leave my family. I don't need to do these things. Yeah, I got an opportunity for a promotion at work. And yeah, I won't have time for my family. I won't have time to disciple my kids. I won't take that into consideration, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, pastor, I know what you're telling me in the counseling room is true, but I'm just not going to do that because of the way I feel, because it will cause me too much pain or it's too difficult. And we allow our feelings to crowd out the word of God. And so we need to turn to the Word of God to see the Spirit's work and what He has revealed. If you want to understand the will of God, know the Scriptures. They will guide you. He will speak to you. He will tell you what you should do. But the good news is the Spirit doesn't just reveal things and tell us about them. He ultimately illuminates His revelation. And that word illumination, hopefully you thought of a light bulb coming on, because that's sort of what happens when the Spirit works with revelation to illuminate us. That he dwells in us as Christians, and he turns the light on. Meaning, he doesn't just make us intellectually grasp scripture, he actually makes us to trust, and obey it, and embrace it. And without illumination... People may intellectually understand the grammar and what the Bible is saying, but they will not ultimately come to trust, to obey, to believe in Scripture. Consider what Paul says in First Corinthians two. First Corinthians two ten through sixteen, Paul says, These things have been revealed through to us through the Holy Spirit. What things? He's in the paragraph prior, he's talking about the wisdom of Christ, of knowing Christ, of understanding Christ. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, The natural person, the unregenerate person, the non-Christian, the unbeliever, the person who doesn't have the spirit, does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Why? They are folly to him. They're foolish. They're dumb. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They are not able. They are incapable of embracing it. And the spiritual person judges all things, but, to, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. To have the spirit is to have the mind of Christ. So, so often when it comes to us as Christians, that's what we're praying for. When I was praying at the beginning of the sermon, that's what we're really praying for is illumination. Spirit, take the word of God as a light into my spirit and light it up. Take the darkness and light up my soul and illuminate me with the word. And the last thing when it comes to revelation is not only does the spirit give revelation, not only does the spirit illuminate revelation, but he actually animates it. He energizes it. He makes the preaching of God effective, that it actually has an effect upon people. And if you're like me, you've probably been at home at some point, frustrating with some electronic device, only to find out maybe 20, 30 minutes later that the battery's dead. And you're like, now I feel pretty dumb. And that's happened to me plenty of times before. And it's very much the same way with the Spirit of God, in that he is the battery, he is the, the energy, so to speak, even though he is, a, he is a person, not an it, as Rick pointed out. But he empowers the preaching of God's word, the effect of God's word on people. And this really comes to bear when people are looking for a place to go to church, it comes to bear in their ministries. Because you see, the primary indicator of the Spirit's work, though He does other things involved in gifting and giving uh, particular abilities or illuminating, are these, is really to animate revelation, to give power to the Word of God. And really the gifting and all of the other things that come with that are connected to his ministry of the word. Let me give you a biblical illustration. Acts 2. Familiar with your Bible? Acts 2 is the day of Pentecost. It's a day where the promised spirit that Jesus is talking about. in John 16 comes down on the disciples, the apostles, and some others there and empowers them for ministry to proclaim Christ. And there's some amazing things that happen there. There's a loud boom, the wind goes out, everyone in the town hears it, there's tongues of fire going around the room, people are speaking in human languages that they've never even had to learn, and they're proclaiming the name of God, and the town's stirred up. They're like, what's going on up there? And when you look at that account in Acts, Luke, Gospel of Luke, Acts written by the same person, Luke, what does that account culminate in? Where does it apex? Apex? It apex when Peter gets up. You know what Peter says? Men of Judea, I have something to say to you. I proclaim to you a man. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And all those events culminate in the preaching of Christ crucified, in the preaching of God's word. And so the primary work of the Spirit doesn't consist in charismatic worship or subjective promptings or miraculous displays, even though, yes, the Spirit does do those things, but in the invisible conviction of the hearts of individual people as Christ is preached. If you want to be in a church where the Holy Spirit is moving, don't look for those other things primarily. Look where the Word of God is being preached. Look where Christ is being exalted that is where the spirit is moving where people are receiving the word of god where people are seeing christ as he should in all his glory that's the work of the spirit it's an amazing thing it's a good thing and what a gracious thing that god would choose to reveal himself to us he was under no obligation to do that to disclose himself, but he does. He does it for his glory, and he does it for our good. But there's another work of the Spirit, and it's connected to the giving of revelation, and that's the Spirit's work of regeneration. He regenerates us. And so Christ chooses to do, I mean, sorry, the Spirit chooses, rather, to do something miraculous that we don't often perceive as miraculous, He changes dead sinners to be spiritually alive in Christ. This is what regeneration is. Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit by which new spiritual life is created in a formerly spiritually dead sinners. And as a result of that, that person is compelled by the Spirit. Convicted by the Spirit, they must come and repent and believe on Christ. And that is a work of the Spirit. If you have your Bibles, turn over to John 3. John 3 is the most clear teaching, I think, on regeneration. So what Jesus has to say about it, John devotes a whole chapter to it. it. And you might have heard regeneration called the new birth. And it's true, that's one of the word pictures that scriptures use, especially John, to describe the Spirit's work of regeneration, to be born again. But let's take a look at John 3, and Rick already preached an excellent sermon on this a few months ago, so we're going to graze through this passage, but I would still love to read it and point out some things. John 3, verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of God, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so what is Jesus telling Nicodemus here? It's absolutely necessary, Nicodemus, for you to enter the kingdom of God, to perceive the kingdom of God, to come into my kingdom, to be born again, to be regenerated. And there's no other way. And the reason that is, is because Jesus, in accordance with the rest of the scriptures, believes something about human nature that's not a very popular thought. And the thought is that human nature is not essentially good, but that human nature is essentially corrupted. And it's not that human beings are incapable of doing anything good. What we mean by that corruption is that even the good things we do are tainted by the corruption in our nature. And your nature is ultimately, what the Bible teaches, is where your desires come from. And so guess what? If you have a sinful nature, what does it produce? Sinful desires. And if you have sinful desires, that produces sinful actions. Even in some of the good things that we do. They can be tainted by the wrong motivations, by the wrong reasons. And so regeneration was necessary because to be born of the Spirit was to be given a new nature. A new nature in which you're not entrapped to sinful desires, but instead you can choose to reject your old nature of being enslaved to sin, of having to obey the desires of your sin, and instead now you serve God. You serve the Spirit of God because you have a new nature made in the likeness of Christ. And so you now you have a choice to obey Jesus for the right reasons for the glory of God. And Jesus believed this firmly and I know he did because in John 6 that's what he taught. In John 6 that's what he taught. And so for all the talk, and some of you might be connecting the dots a little bit, we often talk about, well, you know, where does the idea of free will come into this if the Spirit has to regenerate us to make this decision to enable us to trust in Christ? And really, I would like to say, see the conversation move to, and to what really Jesus describes here, and that is the idea that the Spirit frees our will. The Spirit frees our will from a sinful nature to be able to come to Christ, whereas our sinful nature always pulled us away, always pulled us away from God and towards ourselves, our new nature pulled us towards God. And that is a difficult thing to hear. And referring to John 6, that's what I meant. When you turn there, that's when Jesus uh, speaks that he is the bread coming down from heaven, that just as the physical manna from heaven for the Israelites with salvation to their uh, physical existence, so is Jesus like the spiritual food that someone would need for their spiritual salvation. And in that, he tells them, I think it's John six sixty three, might be 68, but he tells them, look, the flesh, your sinful desire, your sinful nature, that's of no help at all. It is only the Spirit who gives life. The Spirit is the one who gives you life. And guess what happens after Jesus says that? Just a few verses later, it says, And many of his disciples turned away. They said, That's a hard saying, even the ones that stayed. They understood what Jesus meant if I have to submit to the sovereignty of the Spirit. And when it comes to the sovereignty of the Spirit, that's really Jesus' last point. If we keep reading, it says uh, in verse seven, do not marvel in John chapter three that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit, Nicodemus. What's Jesus doing? Well, what he's doing really is using a play on words. And in the language of Christ, whether Frankly, it was Hebrew or Greek. This actually happens in both cases. The word for spirit actually also means wind. And so he's comparing the spirit to the wind in a few different ways. What he's saying, look, you don't know exactly where the wind came from. You don't exactly know where the wind is going. All you can know about the wind is the effects it produces on what it blows against. That's all you can see. And he's relating that to the spirit in the same way. Look, you can't control the spirit. The spirit goes where he wants and does what he wants. And you not might perceive exactly where he is or where he's going, but you can see the effects of where he has been. By the fruits that it produces in people. By whether they embrace Christ and exalt Christ. And so Jesus really ultimately here is saying the Spirit is the initiator of regeneration. He's the one who's sovereign over that. And while that might be something for some of you, you feel very uncomfortable right now or thinking about that, to be honest, it's a great comfort to me to know that in Scripture. It's a great comfort to know. For one thing, just to know even my former self. And the miracle it took for someone like me to change and to come to Christ. That's what I would have told you it would have taken when I was 15 years old, 16 years old. It's going to take a miracle. And there's probably some of you in the church, you were the same way in your testimony. It's going to take me a miracle to believe in all that garbage that Christians believe in. Well, guess what? We happen to be a people who believes in miracle. We happen to be of people who believe in a spirit who does miracles. And sometimes, guess what? He does them without your permission because he's sovereign and it's a good and gracious thing. And so we praise God for his gracious work of gener- regeneration, but it's also a comfort. Think about this when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to telling other people the gospel. God just wants you to be faithful. God just wants you to be faithful. He wants you to take what the Spirit has revealed and to tell others about it, to tell about Christ, to tell about how someone can be saved. That's what God asks of you. I tell the students all the time, we go uh, evangelizing uh, every other month right, right now, and any of you are welcome to come. And I tell them, look, it's not about being the best at apologetics. It's not about being the smartest or the most articulate or knowing all the answers. It's not about being socially adept. Yeah, those are skills that are helpful, but ultimately, God just calls you to be faithful. Just proclaim the word. Tell someone the truth. And all you know, and if you're a new Christian, is look, I was spiritually blind and dead, and now I see, and Jesus has forgiven my sins, and that's what he offers to you. That's what God calls you to tell that person. That's it. And you can rest assured that someone else's salvation doesn't ultimately rest in your hands, it rests in God's hands. And you don't have to fear, you don't have to be anxious. He's a compassionate God, He's a good God, He's a gracious God. He loves to answer the prayers of His children as you pray for people to be saved. And so that's ultimately why it's a comfort. And that's why we should pray for other people, that they're regenerated, that the Spirit works in them, that he performs a miracle even for the most unlikely of people. But we've got to move to the last work of the Spirit, and that's to renew. The Spirit also renews, you might have read it in your Bible as sanctification or heard it from someone preaching as sanctification, and that's really what we're talking about. The Spirit does an act of renewal when he saves us. And most of you, being in a church like this, are probably used to hearing sanctification in the context of, oh yeah, right, that's the process where I'm becoming more like Christ. I'm being sanctified. I'm becoming more holy. And that is true that that's an aspect of sanctification, a sanctification that's progressive, where God is using everything in your life, that's what Romans 8.28 says, For all things work for good for those who love God. What's that good? To conform them to the image of his son. He's making you more like Jesus. But the Bible actually teaches there's other aspects to that in which God is making us holy. And that's of the work of the spirit. And really, there's two parts. There's a beginning and an end to that in between the progression of becoming sanctified. And so there's actually a legal renewal, a legal renewal. And that seems like an odd term, but if you're familiar with the Bible, even if you've just read it sort of cursory, um, there's a lot of legal language in the Bible, talking about laws, talking about witnesses, talking about judges, and even uh, aspects of advocates and lawyers. And why is that the case? It's because much of the Bible takes place against the backdrop of having an understanding of God's law that there is a divine judge, that there is a law that he has given, and there are people who have rebelled against that law, and there is consequences for that. To sin is to rebel, to ignore, to reject God's law, to choose to not obey him. And there's a punishment for that, just like there's consequences when we break the law in our own systems. And God condemns those justly, for disobeying the law, and they suffer the punishment owed to them. And so when it comes to that legal language, you've probably heard of justification, that's when uh, uh, an idea or a theological concept that God makes us rights before him, that he makes us righteous. And the idea is that when Christ died in our place and took our sins, and ultimately took his own righteousness and gave it to us, and we embrace that by faith and trust in what Jesus has done, Jesus has essentially removed the penalty that was owed to us. He removed the penalty that the law owed us for our sin. And when it comes to sanctification or this legal renewal, there's another aspect that the Spirit's involved in, that that not only the penalty of the law is removed, but really the power of sin, the power of the law is removed from us. And so while justification removes that penalty... The renewal of our legal status by the spirit makes it so sin no longer has dominion over us. That's why Paul in Romans chapter six and seven, you can go home and read it later but he used his language like this. He says, "Look, Christians have died to sin." You were crucified, your old self, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You are set free from sin, and we have become what? Slaves of righteousness. You must consider yourself, or they must consider themselves, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it is from that basis from which our, ultimately our progressive sanctification comes, That the Spirit must do that work in us, that sin no longer dominates us, that we have to submit to it as slaves, that the Spirit empowers us, that actually, alongside Him, as He works in us, we can strive to become more like Christ. And that's what the progressive sanctification of what you're used to is about. But when you read the Bible, be careful, because when He uses the word sanctification, Sometimes it's talking about different aspects. And you have to ask yourself is the author talking about something that happened to me in the past already? Is the author talking to me about something that's ongoing right now? Or lastly, something that's going to be happening in the future? And when it comes to our progressive sanctification, i got to land this plane sooner than later. I went too much over first service. But I'll just say the way that that primarily happens. The way that that primarily happens is from the Spirit showing us Christ to become more like Him. This is what it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Talking about the Spirit, Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom for what? What are we free from? What are we free to do? This is what we're free to do. And we all, with unveiled face, without a covering, without a barrier, beholding the glory of the Lord, are what? Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Everything the Spirit is doing as you read this book, as you pray, as you're gifted, is trying to help you see Christ. And as you see Christ rightly, you will become more like him. He's transforming us into that same image. That is what God is doing. And that's the goal we ought to have in mind when we go about our spiritual disciplines. Am I becoming more like Christ? Am I obeying the commands in Scripture to cooperate with the Spirit in my sanctification? And uniquely, progressive sanctification is the one aspect that the Bible does actually teach us. That the Spirit's enabled us, that we have a part in that. Our legal sanctification, the Spirit does. Our justification ultimately isn't of us. And lastly, on the book end of our progressive sanctification, Our perfected renewal, the final completion of that transformation, is really of the spirit of God as well. And so Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 12, 23, look, says that at death, the spirit of the saints, it's perfected. That old nature is done away with. No more sin, no more flesh, no more being dominated by that. And your soul will be perfected. And then, according to John, in his epistles, 1 John 3, 2, he really tells us, look, when Christ comes back, there'll be time when you're given a new body, and that will be perfected as well. And so you will be complete. You'll have a perfected soul, you will have a perfected body, and you will be able to see Christ in all his glory with no mud of sin, with no barrier, with nothing obscuring your view. And ultimately, when you come to see Christ and you see him face to face, you will see him just as he intended. And you will rejoice. You will have pleasure in that. You will worship God forever and ever in everything that you do in heaven and on the new earth. And that's something as Christians, we need to long for and look forward to. If you're tired of this life, look forward to that day. It's not a bad thing tired of paying bills, tired of politics, tired of COVID, tired of whatever it is, look forward to the day when you will see Christ face to face and you will see him just as he is. And so ultimately it comes down to this, to the work of the spirit is, do you see the work of the spirit in your life? Do you see the work of the spirit in your life? And there's an easy way to answer that. What do you think about Christ? What are your affections towards Christ? When you live your life, who is it for? Is it for Christ or is it for something else? Who do you enjoy telling others most about? Do you see yourself becoming more like Christ? The Spirit indwells you so that you can be more like Christ, so you can see Christ, so you can love Christ, so you embrace Christ, so you can help others to do the same? Do you see the work of the Spirit in your life as you exalt Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent Christ. And thank you, Father and Son, that you sent the Spirit. Without him, Lord, we are hopeless. So I said at the beginning of this, Spirit, nothing significant happens in our spiritual lives. Nothing significant happens in your, in your plan of salvation or the story of redemption without the Spirit, Lord. We're thankful for his work and his ministry and our hearts and our lives, and we just pray that you would make us more and more aware of what he is doing so we can make more and more of Christ in our lives, in this life, and forevermore in the life to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.